So our theme is Christmas time, and uh, and just to introduce that, you know, I was thinking there are a couple of types of gift givers on Christmas. Uh, some gift givers uh, they're very fastidious about you know shopping for the gift and wrapping the gift, and they have this magic ability to keep the gift and give it at just the right time at Christmas time, right? And then there are others like me and my wife who are the consummate losers because we buy the gifts, but we can't wait for Christmas time, right? How many are with us? You buy the gift. You just can't wait. It's like, just open it now. You got to have it now. So we've both already given one another our, our Christmas uh, presents, you know. Uh, I, I, I bought her a mop and a, and a, and a microwave. And... Uh, <laughs> I didn't. That was last year. Um, <laughs> no, we both bought, you know, one another our gifts, but, but we couldn't hold them to, uh, to the right time. We just gave them at the, at the time that we had them in our hand. But our Lord, as we're going to see, well, here, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, if you're there, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, and if you're not, we'll put it on the screen for you. Christmas is one of those rare times when I take the teaching text, I put it up on the screen for you, all right? So here it is. It says this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might be, receive the adoption as sons. Now, now give your attention there to that first sentence, when the fullness of time had come. That phrase, the fullness of time, literally, best definition here, is when the time was just right. When the time was perfect. And that's the theme of our Christmas service today. It's Christmas time. And our focus is on God's perfect timing in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. And our premise today in our teaching in the text is that Jesus was not randomly born, but that he was strategically born for a strategic time and for a strategic purpose. Our premise is that the events that transpired leading up to the birth, the life, and ultimately the death of Jesus Christ, they were not a product of happenstance, but they were a product of careful planning and the careful providence of God. It was J. Vernon McGee who said this. He said, providence is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. In other words, the events that happen in our life, uh, they're not always as random as we think they might be. Sometimes things transpire in our life and we think, well, that was random. Or we think, well, that came out of left field. Or I was totally not expecting that. And we are caught by surprise. But the, the idea is that really the events that transpire in our life, really, if you, if you belong to the Lord, then your life and the events of it are providential. God's hand is in the glove of human events. And this is exactly what the Bible says, Romans eight twenty eight tells us that we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose for them. And the Christmas story in particular serves as an example of God's providence, an example of God's perfect timing, of His perfect will, God's providential timing of a nation that was desperate for a Savior, 
his providence of a worldwide infrastructure in which Jesus was born into that was ripe for the spread of the gospel. And the providence of hundreds of years of prophecy all converging on this little town in Bethlehem in just the right place, under just the right circumstances, at just the right time. And it's worth noting, by the way, that the way it all unfolded on that Christmas, on that first Christmas, we look back at it from the perspective of history. We look back at it having the whole book written. And we, knowing the end from the beginning, as it were, regarding that story, we can see God's fingerprints all over it. We can see the providence of it. But imagine and understand that those that were going through the Christmas story, these heroes of the Christian faith, well, it would seem like anything but perfect timing to them in the time that they're going through it. There's many aspects of the Christmas story that the participants wouldn't have chosen for themselves. Consider Mary. She would not have chosen for herself. If she could have authored the Christmas story, she would not have chosen the social stigma and the rumors that would follow her for her entire life. Those that would not believe that she was pregnant by the work of God through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, this this immaculate conception. There were many who were like, that is just ridiculous. Like, you know, here's this teenage girl, she's pregnant, and then she says, it's God's child. And they're like, yeah, right, you know. And uh, so there, there was a stigma that hung over her. This, this reputation of, of, you know, being a floozy and, and of having a, an illegitimate child. And so she would not have chosen that for herself. She would not have chosen for herself to, hey, I know what, uh, you, you know, you're nine months pregnant. How about this? How about you ride a donkey for 100 miles from your hometown to Bethlehem? And for what purpose? So we can tax you. Right? No, you would not have chosen that for for yourself, right? Um, She would not have chosen, hey, I know the kind of place, you know, ladies, when you're pregnant, you start nesting, right? Got to get everything just prepared for my baby. Let's prepare the nursery. Mary would not have chosen, hey, I know what, here's the story. I'm going to have the kid in a barn. And his first bed will be a feeding trough. Let's just stick him in a saliva-stained feeding trough that animals have, have been using, right? That would not have been her choice. Joseph, were he able to author the Christmas story, he would not have chosen that his betrothed wife would be pregnant with a child that, that was not his own child. He wouldn't have chosen that. He, he would not have chosen, hey, I know what, you know, when you have your baby, uh, why don't you be in a situation where you, as the husband, as the provider, as the nurturer, as the protector, you can't even give your wife a proper place to lay her head that night. You know, you, you have to, to settle for a barn. He would not have chosen that. He would not have chosen the social, and the, the social stigma and the rumors that would plague him for his, the rest of his life. But listen, after the events of the story have, have transpired, when you and I have the, the opportunity to look in the rearview mirror of history, even for Mary and Joseph having the opportunity, even though they were warned of all of these things, 
certainly after the events transpired, after they played themselves out, after that Christmas time, that first Christmas time, played itself out, well, then they could see the perfection of God's plan. And as we consider God's providence, his perfect timing in the Christmas time story, there is an opportunity here this morning for you and me to be reminded of God's providential timing in our life. That, that maybe today events in your life are going according to, to plan and the way you expected, but maybe they're not. And it's an opportunity for us to be reminded, hey, listen, God's timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. And His timing being perfect is always centered towards reaching out in love and working to redeem a fallen world, to redeem you and I, to provide us with a future and a hope and life and and, and blessing and not cursing. This is the will of God in our life. And so now in our text, the Bible says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as, son, and as sons and as daughters, as it were. And again, the idea behind this phrase, the fullness of time, it's when the time was just right. When the time was just right. Now, we, we think about the Christmas time story, and naturally, we see the birth of Jesus as the beginning of that story. But in truth, the story actually began thousands of years earlier, not with the birth of a baby, but it began with the bite of an apple. We're going to look at four essential aspects of the Christmas story today here in our text. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. We're going to look at the beginning of the Christmas story, number one. Number two, we're going to look at the reason for the Christmas story. Number three, we're going to look at the hope of the Christmas story. And number four, we're going to bring it around again to the timing of the Christmas story. We'll begin with the beginning of the Christmas story. And the story of Christmas does not begin in a manger 2,000 years ago. The timing, the story begins, hey, it begins in the garden at the beginning of time. That's where the story actually begins, the story of Christmas. You see, the Bible says that God created man for fellowship with him. We were intelligently designed. We didn't just go from the goo to the zoo to you. God intelligently designed and created mankind. And God created us for a relationship with him, that we might know him, that, that we might enjoy his creation in fellowship with him. And because God is a loving God, when he created us, when he gave to us life, what he also gave to us was what's known as free will. This is where, hey, listen, God didn't create you as a robot. He didn't say, hey, this is how you're going to be programmed to live and to operate, and everybody has to love me because that's how they're programmed that, that type of a, a relationship would not be a loving relationship at all. It would just be you operating according to a fixed and a constrained program. God, he wants our relationship with him to be a real and a genuine love. And in order for there to be a real and a genuineness component to our love, we have to have a say in the matter. We have to have a choice. And so God gave to mankind this free choice, the freedom to choose what our relationship with him is going to look like. Whether or not our relationship with him is going to be, hey, we're going to be submitted to your will, or no, it's going to be my way, it's going to be my will. 
whether I'm going to obey the things that God has said are best for me or whether or not I'm going to disobey. And so this is the capacity in which he's created us. And because God's a gentleman, never forces himself on us, he simply lets us decide. We have an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 30 where the Lord, speaking to the nation of Israel, he says, hey, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses, Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And the choice is, this is an example of God given the choice. Hey, there, here it is, man. You can choose. And this capacity to choose goes all the way back to the garden where God created, an Ad, created Adam and Eve and he gave them there the capacity to choose. And we see in Genesis chapter 2 that rather than choosing life, actually Genesis chapter 3, Rather than choosing life, Adam and Eve chose sin, and that ushered in death. The Bible says this. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world, and Adam's sin brought death. It brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now, this is the sad beginning of the story, not the beautiful, peaceful birth of Jesus Christ, you know, that, that star-studded sky and all of that in the manger. No, it's the ugly, brutal beginning of the birth of sin. That's the start of the story. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But thank you, Jesus, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. The Bible also declares that God is a God of love. And the Apostle John said it this way. He said, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so this brings us to the, the second thing to note today about the Christmas story. Number two, the reason for the Christmas story. Again, looking at our text here in Galatians chapter 4, we read that when the fullness of time had come, this perfect timing of God, God then sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, here it is, listen, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, the key phrase here is to redeem. To redeem. Now, you look up this word redeem or redemption in the dictionary, here's what you'll find. You'll find that Webster's has two primary def definitions for the word redeem. The first one is to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of someone. And the second definition is to gain possession of something in exchange for payment. And really, truly, the context of the Christmas story is both. It's, it's, to, it's, it's God compensating for the faults, our faults, which the Bible calls sin, and it's God gaining possession of you and me in exchange for a payment. And the payment was Jesus Christ given as a sinless offering for our sin that he would ultimately die and pay the penalty for our sin, the wages of sin being death. And Jesus says that I'll take those stripes upon myself. I'll take that penalty upon myself. Jesus came to compensate for our faults. He came to gain possession of us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the key in him, in Jesus, in his work on the cross. 
Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll put this on the screen for you. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Just pause right there. So many people, when they come to God, they're thinking, man, i got to clean my life up to come to God. Like, you know, uh, there's no way that I've done too much. I can't go to God. It's just I'm past the point of no return, no hope. I, I, I just, I've got, you know, way too many, you know, strikes against me for, for me to ever have, you know, a chance getting right with a big guy. Like, I, I wrote that off a long time ago. And, and Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 is, is saying, no, God's rich in mercy, and he's got great love for you. He doesn't have anger towards you. He loves you. <coughs> Desires, the Bible says, that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And so what, even when we're dead in trespasses and sins, even when, you know, we, Satan sells us a bill of goods, he, he lies to us, gets us to sin, and then when we sin, he goes, oh, now you, you can never come to God. Or, boy, you got to make all that up and butter up God, you know, to get him to the place and, and where, he, where he's cool with you. And the Bible says, no, that's not it. Even when you're, you're the worst sinner, even when you're dead in your trespasses and sins, listen, God made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved, right? Um, and, and he continues, Paul says, and, and he raised us up together and he made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he, God, through the personal work of Christ, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, you're not going to earn it, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." You see, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that sin brought the curse of death to mankind, right? But in that moment, God promised that there was an opportunity for life. Here's what Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, the serpent, Satan, leading Eve to sin, ushering sin into the world, Adam would sin with her and so on, and God would say this, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock (coughs) and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. But here's the promise. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now this is the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Basically, what Genesis chapter 3, there in verse 15, what it tells us is that Satan is going to take his best shot trying to take Jesus out and essentially going to strike his heel. He's going to be crucified on a cross. That's what this is pointing to. But what is Jesus going to do on that cross? He's going to crush the enemy. He's going to crush your head. He He is going to die on the cross for the sins of mankind, and he's going to conquer Satan and sin and death. And so this is the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus in the Bible, that a Savior is going to be born of a woman to defeat Satan and sin and death. And this is exactly what our text says, does it not? That God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions, the adoption as sons. 
That's the story of Christmas. Let me put it up on the screen for you. Matthew 1, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. The story of Christmas. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his, Mary, his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, he was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she'll bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And herein we have number three, the hope of the Christmas story, that God himself came to save us from our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin or to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus Christ. Paul told the Colossians, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for He forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and He took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by His victory over them on the cross. And I want you to notice the phrase there in verse 14 that He canceled the record of charges against us. I want you to think about this. When is it that you face charges? Here's here's when it is. You face charges when you break the law, right? And the Bible says when it comes to God's law, all of us are lawbreakers, right? Every last one of us. Isaiah the prophet said it bluntly. He said, your iniquities, your sin have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Listen, that's the bad news, but the good news and the hope of Christmas is that when we were utterly helpless, Christ came, here it is again, at just the right time, and he died for us sinners, which brings us right back around where we began and where we now end, the timing of the Christmas story. When the fullness of time had come, when the time was just right, God sent forth his son. And when Jesus was born, listen, his birth was at just the right time. It was at the right time religiously. It was at the right time culturally. It was at the right time politically. And it was at the right time prophetically. First of all, it was at the right time religiously. Historians tell us that at this time in human history, the world was living in great expectation. Old religions at this point in time, 2,000 years ago, were dying. Old philosophies were being abandoned as the people came to find that what they had been investing in, what they had been trusting in, what they had been hoping in. Hey, listen, they, they were being found wanting. And people were like, well, these, these things are powerless. All these things we're trusting in are powerless. They're, they're no, there's no change that they deliver. And so there was a spiritual hunger for Jesus at this time. 
Simultaneously, this spiritual hunger was, was permeating throughout the world as everybody's searching for answers. And so it was the right time religiously. Also, listen, it was the right time culturally. Because what was happening 2,000 years ago during their culture, the Roman government had significantly altered the world's infrastructure. They had, through, through conquering all of these different nations and so on and occupying them, they had secured vast sea lanes where before people could, would have trouble traversing on the sea because they would be overtaken by pirates and, and whatnot. The, because of Rome's rule... It was now safer for people to travel, and so that opened up all of these sea lanes, all of these ports, and so you had much more worldwide travel that was taking place. They built over 50,000 miles of paved road. And not only that, but for many of the paved roads that Rome had built, they even had oil lamps lighting the roads for much of these 50,000 miles. And so, again, that connected cities and caused there to, to be, you know, a lot more connectiveness and a lot more ability for, for goods and services and information to, to, to traverse the world. And as well, because people were so connected and because Rome was overseeing it all, uh, they had a common language. They had uh, Latin and Greek were the, were the primary languages that, that were used by most of the people in the known world at the time because, you know, they were doing business this way and this was all secured by Rome. And so, so what this did was it opened up a great opportunity for the spread of the gospel because now you've got all these sea lanes and ports and roads and language that's being spoken and so the, the opportunity for God's Messiah to come and for the gospel to go forth was perfect timing for it. The world wasn't ready for the, world, for the word to spread like it was until that time. And then you had the political climate. You know, they had what was known as the Pax Romana, right? This is the peace of Rome. And basically, Rome's attitude was, once they conquered a nation, they're like, don't mess with us, we won't mess with you, right? We're in charge, just accept it, and, and things will be cool. And, it, and that brought a kind of order to things so that, you know, when the gospel would come, now ultimately it would prove problematic, but, but initially this peace and this order created a kind of structure where the gospel could go forth. It was perfect timing for God. And so the time was right religiously, the time was right culturally, the time was right politically, but most important, the time was right prophetically. It was right prophetically in that God had called his shot throughout Old Testament history. You read the Old Testament and over and over again, hundreds of prophecies where God pulled a Babe Ruth, stood at home plate, motioned to the to outfield, said, I'm about to knock this out of the park. And he did that saying, look, Jesus is coming. And not only did he say that Jesus is coming, he said the specific time down to the day that Jesus would come. Daniel's, Daniel's prophecies in Daniel chapter 9 spell out right to the day when Jesus would come. If you've got time, you can go to my message. I preached through Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 9 and listen to the, the amazing accuracy of the prophecy. And, and God says, who else can tell you what's going to happen before he, before he does it? God says, I'm the only one that, 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 that'll tell you what's going to happen before I do it. God actually says that in his word. And he does. You know, we you know, read the National Enquirer. It's like, oh, there are all these prophecies for 2019, you know. And, and if even one of those come right, people are, will lose their minds. Oh, well, this was ahead of time and it was right, you know. 
God, hundreds of times in advance, says, here's what's going to happen. Here's when it's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen. And then through the passage of time, you go, well, I'll be doggone. He's right. He's right. He's right. He's right. 100% accuracy. Prophecies are right. Isaiah, he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Hundreds and hundreds of years in advance transpired. Again, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Happened. Came to pass. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant Past, hundreds of years in advance, transpired, came to be. The Jewish nation, understand, they've always been looking for this coming Messiah. The scriptures promise it. They've been looking for it. And they had a Jewish prayer that, that, that exists and is prayed to this day. I believe in the coming Messiah, and even though he tarry, I will wait for him every day. Well, this expectation had reached its zenith here in the first century A.D. And so what you had, man, you've got this expectation that's buzzing about, like the Messiah is going to come, we know it. And one of the reasons for this expectation was another prophecy that had been given by Jacob to his son Judah in Genesis 49. It says this, The scepter, meaning the right to rule, will not depart from uh, Jerusalem or from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. And this is universally understood that this is speaking of the Messiah. But, and pay attention, this is key to where we're going to land here on this message. There seemed to be a problem. For those people that would look at the events, that those people that would stand and look at how everything was unfolding in, in the events that were allowing, you know, God was allowing to have happen, it would seem like God wasn't honoring what he'd promised. It would seem like his promises had not only not come to pass, but that they were being broken. Because what happened in the first century, actually the, the, towards the end, it was like 69 AD or so, what happened, Roman, the Romans came and they overthrew, they overthrew Jerusalem, right? And so Rome had come in and it looked as though they had taken away this scepter, this right to rule from the Israelites and from Judah, from, you know, the, all of this that's going on. And this, man, we've, not, we've lost our rule. We're now restrained by this enemy occupier, like things aren't going as planned. And the Jewish Talmud reports that when this happened, that the religious leaders marched around Jerusalem, and then here's what they shouted. They shouted, the scepter has departed from Judah, and Messiah has not come. This is part of the history. What, what, what is it that happened? They said, God, you let us down. God, this, this, you promised all of this stuff. You promised this divine timetable. You promised that the Messiah would come. And, and, and it, not from where I stand, looks to me like you've broken your promises. 
And maybe today that might be where some of us are. We talk about Christmas time. We talk about God's perfect timing. And maybe right now if you look at the events in your life and you look at the things that are happening and you might go, you know what, God? Spare me. Because from where I sit, it doesn't look like you're a God who keeps promises. It looks like you're a God who breaks promises. It looks like you're a God who breaks hearts. And, and, I, and I, I don't know if I can trust you. Here's what I want you to hear. Nobody had any idea at that exact same moment when these religious leaders were marching around the, the, the town basically saying, you broke your promise to us. They had no idea that 30 miles away in the dusty town of Nazareth, there was a young man who was being trained as a carpenter who'd already been born, who'd already been delivered, who'd already been brought, and he's about to lay down his tools and reveal himself to the Jewish nation that Shiloh, the Messiah, had come. And in closing today, when we're talking about Christmas time, listen, we're talking about God's perfect timing. And I want you to know that his timing is perfect for you to be here, for you to hear the gospel. God's timing is perfect. For what's going on in your life today, the things that you're bearing through, the things that you're enduring, the things that have broken your heart, the things that have not gone according to plan, God's perfect timing is unfolding. And today, as we close in prayer, God is giving you an invitation to trust in his perfect timing, to be reminded afresh by the Christmas time story. It's Christmas time. And God is a God who keeps promises. God is a God who will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And he promises as far as the east is from the west, in Jesus Christ, so far as he cast your sins from you. Today, you can be forgiven of sin. You can be cleansed of all unrighteousness. You can have a do-over with God. He can make you a new creation today. Today, if you say, hey, I've prayed that prayer and I've done that, but man, I have been struggling. I have been hurting. I have been reeling. I have been maybe wondering if maybe God's lost my address. Listen, you can be reminded God is a faithful God.